Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like Him. Well, now we get to hear from Scripture, and we turn today to Isaiah chapter 40. Um, I will be reading the Scripture today. Uh, So if you have a Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 40. If you don't, there's a pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have a Bible that's easy for you to read at home, go ahead and take that one with you. That is our gift to you. Um, We are in Isaiah chapter 40. It should be somewhere around the center of your Bible. No shame in using the table of contents ever. Sometimes I do still. Um, All those little prophets, they're hard to keep in line, right? Um, Isaiah chapter 40, we're going to read verses 1 through 11 today. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of forced labor is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Every valley will be lifted up and every mountain and hill will be leveled. The uneven ground will become smooth and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will appear and all humanity together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice was saying, cry out. Another said, what should I cry out? All humanity is grass, and all its goodness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade when the breath of the Lord blows on them. Indeed, the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord, the word of our God, remains forever. Zion, herald of good news, go up on a high mountain. Jerusalem, herald of good news, raise your voice loudly. Raise it, do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with strength, and his power establishes his rule. His wages are with him, and his reward accompanies him. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those that are nursing. The word of the Lord. Shalom, everybody. You think about shalom much? A lot of us, uh, if you're not, you know, a Hebrew speaker, you're not Jewish, the word shalom might just be the Hebrew word for hello to you. Shalom is a much bigger word than that, though. We have a really interesting way of greeting one another in English. We say hello or hi, how you doing, right? They're, they're good words. You can inflect them however you want. You can make, them, you can make feel someone feel super welcome with the word hello. You can make somebody feel judged with the word hello. Right? It all depends on how you intone your voice. Because the word hello is nothing more than a greeting to us. It doesn't mean anything on its own. All of the meaning is in how you use it and how you inflect it. But a lot of cultures in the world, a lot of languages in the world have words for hello that mean so much more than just the tone you put behind them. And in in Hebrew, the way you greet one another is with the word shalom. 
Now, you can use shalom, you can intone it many different ways to, to, in, to mean something to the person you're talking to, but the word itself has, is loaded with meaning. You can't change that. You can't alter the fact that the word you're saying is, is loaded with meaning directly from God. And that's what I love about greeting people with, with a meaningful word, is that no matter how I use it, I can't change that bit of it. I can't change the deeper meaning of it. You see, shalom is not the word simply for hello. It's not the word simply for peace, as you might have heard. Shalom has wrapped up in this one word all of God's intentions for creation. When you say shalom, what you're saying is, I hope that everything good God wants for you comes about. When you say shalom, you're saying, I walk into or I press into everything that God wants and intends for the world. Now, surely not everybody who uses the word means that when they say it, but they can't change the fact that that's what the word means. Shalom is a one-word description of the world as God wants it, the world as God intends it. And we are all looking for shalom. Whether you know it or not, if you look around the world and you see that it's not as it should be, if you look around the world and you see that justice is not done, peace is not brought, that strife and greed and power and oppression mark our world, and you know that's not right, you're holding the world up to some standard beyond yourself. That standard that you're holding the world up to, whether you know it or not, is shalom. The standard that you're judging the world by to say, this isn't right, this isn't the way that it's supposed to be, that standard is shalom. Because we are made in the image of God. We are made to image God. We are made with something of the divine spark within us. And there is something in every single one of us that knows things are not in order. They're not the way that they're supposed to be. And that standard is in some way imprinted on us. So that we can look out at the world, we can look at a world riven by brokenness and greed and power and oppression and struggle and abuse and say, this is wrong. The standard that we're judging by is God's peace what God intended, because that impression is left on us. Broken as we are, sinful as we are, marred as the image of God is in us because of our sin, there's still something of the standard of God imprinted upon us as people made in His image. And we know things are not right. And we long for shalom. We long for God's peace. We long for the world that God always intended. But the problem is, no matter what we do, we can't get there. Everything's been tried. And then everything's been tried again. There is nothing new under the sun, says the writer of Ecclesiastes. Looking out at a hopeless world and being totally, totally taken down by it, the writer of Ecclesiastes looks out and says, everything is grass, everything blows away, everything is fleeting, and there's no hope. 
There's a time and a season for everything, and it just keeps circling around and nothing changes. And so as much as we may feel like we live in a unique moment in world history, we don't. The condition of the human heart has never changed. The longings and desires of the human heart have never changed. God's definition of shalom has never changed. And so no matter how we pursue peace, no matter how we pursue wholeness and goodness and justice in our worldly ways, we're never going to get there without the empowerment of God's Holy Spirit, without God stepping into our world, without God stepping into our reality and paving the way for us to it. We can't get to shalom on our own. We need help. And that's why a guy named John the Baptist, good old JTB, came. Back in Matthew chapter 3, we read about the herald of Christ, the herald of Jesus. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. For he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, who said, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Here, Matthew, the writer of the gospel, the story of Jesus, is telling us that before Jesus came, there was this other dude named John the Baptist, or as I prefer, John the Baptizer, John the baptizer comes and he is paving the way for Jesus. He's making this path straight for him. He's making the road easier for Jesus. Now, John the baptizer doesn't come out of nowhere. We're told about his birth. John the baptizer actually has a pretty cool birth story himself. John the baptizer's dad was a priest and he was serving in the temple as priests would on their rotation. And so John the baptizer's dad... Uh, gets the opportunity to go into the Holy of Holies and to serve on behalf of the people. And while he is there, he prays. And he kind of breaks a rule when he does this. Zechariah, he's a good priest, he's a good dude. But when you're a priest serving in the temple, you're not supposed to pray personal prayers. But Zechariah is like really wants a kid. He and his wife are aging. They shouldn't be able to have kids. But Zechariah really wants a kid. And so an angel appears to Zechariah and says, Zechariah, you're going to have a son. And Zechariah's like, what? He doesn't believe him. And so the angel's like, Zechariah, um, yeah, I'm an angel. You can trust my word. And just as a sign of what's going to happen, you're not going to be able to speak until your son is born. And so Zechariah, who had gone into there being able to talk and do his work, comes out a mute. He can't speak at all. Zechariah's got to write his notes. And for 10 months, 9 months, 10 months, whatever it is, while his wife Elizabeth is pregnant with their son, Zechariah can't talk. And he's writing notes to everybody, telling them what happened. And he writes down, this boy's name will be John. Right? They're discussing what the name is going to be. And Zechariah writes down for Elizabeth, John. That's who he'll be. Now, it turns out that Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife, has a younger cousin named Mary, who also got a visit from an angel and was also told, hey, you're going to become pregnant. Only Mary didn't have a Zechariah. Right? Mary was single at the time. And so an angel comes to Mary and is like, yo, Mary, you're going to become pregnant with a baby boy. 
and he will be called Emmanuel. And then we fast forward years later, and Jesus' cousin John is out there paving the way for the Christ, preaching in the wilderness, making the path straight for Jesus. And that's where the writer here, Matthew, in his gospel, points back to this prophecy of Isaiah and says, JTB's that guy. John the baptizer is the voice crying in the wilderness, make a way for the Lord. So what does this all mean? What does it mean that John the baptizer is out there making a path for the Christ, paving the way for Jesus? I mean, that's great, but if it doesn't mean anything to us, then it doesn't, then it doesn't mean anything. So we got to go back to Isaiah chapter 40 and take a look at what God is actually saying to his people. Now, as you're reading through the gospel or the book of Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah, the more you read it, the more you know that there's a big difference between chapter 39 and chapter 40. Like something big happens between 39 and 40. You got Isaiah prophesying to the nation of Judah all the way up through chapter 39 through under multiple kings until he finishes with Hezekiah. And at the end of chapter 39, Isaiah is talking to King Hezekiah of Judah, and Isaiah is telling Hezekiah some pretty bad news. Hey man, in the future, your descendants are going to be taken away to Babylon. They're going to be carted off. Babylon's going to come in. They're going to destroy the temple. They're going to cart away the people. They're going to make your descendants into eunuchs and take them into captivity. And then we read at the end of 39 a really interesting verse. Hezekiah was glad in his heart because this wouldn't happen in his lifetime. Isaiah has just told Hezekiah, yo, the, the country, the nation is going under. Because of their sin, the nation is going to be taken into captivity in Babylon. Another empire is going to come and cart away your descendants. And Hezekiah says, yeah, but it won't happen in my lifetime. So we're good. As an aside, I've been a part of a lot of churches where an older population said, as long as the church survives me, I'm happy. With the same attitude as Hezekiah here. We can have the same attitude about a lot of things. There are a lot of us in the world who are like, well, as long as it's good while I'm here. Forget the next generations. As long as it's okay while I'm around, all things are good. And the lesson here of Hezekiah is you've got to look beyond yourself. Look beyond this generation. Look to what God is doing in the future. Prepare now for what God will do then. Because God is always working. God is always moving. And if we are so short-sighted and selfish to think, well, it's going to be okay while I'm here, then we're really not living into God's purpose for our lives or our future. Everything we do ought to be about the kingdom of God now and then, and into the future. So, at the end of chapter 39, we got King Hezekiah of Judah saying, well, it's okay, it's not going to happen in my lifetime. And then we start with chapter 40, and something weird is going on. Because the God who has just proclaimed judgment over Judah is now saying, comfort my people. And as you read chapter 40 through 55, you get the sense that we've jumped way forward in time. We're no longer talking about the exile into Babylon. Now we've been transported to the time when the people come back 
from Babylon. A lot of scholars call this second Isaiah. They think maybe these chapters were authored by a different author than the original Isaiah. You got the original Isaiah prophesying through the reign of Hezekiah, and then a poet comes later or another prophet comes later and adds to these prophecies, prophesying the word of God over the people just before they come back from exile in Babylon. Maybe it's the same guy, right? God, is, God can clearly tell the one Isaiah what's going to happen in 150 years. But it doesn't take anything away from the authority of Scripture. It doesn't take anything away from the miraculous work of God to say that another poet comes in later and writes these words of God too. So let's, let's get that out of our minds, right? We, we, we get tied sometimes to authorship and we get tied sometimes to these legalistic thoughts about the Bible that we need to f- break free from. So whether this is the original Isaiah or this is another servant of God speaking the words of God at a later time, 150 years or so after the first Isaiah, either way, these are the words of God to a people who have been living in exile. Now, we've got a lot of scripture from the time that Judah was in exile in Babylon. To be in exile means that this empire has come in, besieged the city of Jerusalem, taken away all the most important people of Judah. So there are still people left in the land. There are farmers and there are people who live outside the city and there are just less important people that the Babylonians thought didn't really matter. But they've carted away all of the leadership of the nation and all the educated people. They've carted away all the religious leadership and burned down the temple. And so all of these leaders of Judah are living in Babylon. And while they're in Babylon, they're told by the prophet Jeremiah, seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon. Build homes. Start businesses. Have families. Seek the well-being of your Babylonian neighbor while you're in Babylon. And now Isaiah is talking to the people as they're coming back. God is now giving a word to his people in exile in Babylon. You're going to go home. Get excited because now's the time you get to leave exile and you get to go home. And so Isaiah 40 to 55 is a homecoming poem. It's the story of God leading his people home. And that's where it begins with what we read. Comfort the people. Comfort the people who have been living in exile. Comfort the people who have been living among a pagan nation. Comfort the people who have been living with their enemies, who have been setting up life and and building a life there in exile because they're coming home. Even goes so far as to say that Judah has received double from the Lord's hand for her sins. This is God saying, enough is enough, and you've had enough. I sent you into exile because of your sin. I sent you into exile because you weren't obeying me. You were oppressing your neighbor. I sent you into exile because you weren't listening to me. And now that you've been living in exile and you understand what I'm calling you to, you've received enough. It's time for you to go home. And so he's calling his people home. Enough is enough. It's time for you to come home and reestablish your nation of Judah. And that's where then the voice comes, a voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. This is a parade image. This is is what a, a conquering king would do after coming home from a battle. A group goes out before them to pave the way, to take the rocks out of the way, to make the low places level so that when the king comes, the king has a smooth and level road to walk on. 
or to ride on. Kings don't walk. Kings ride. And so when the king comes home, after a great battle, after a great war, the servants go ahead of the king and make the road straight and smooth so that the king has a smooth ride home. When we read that the, that the people are going ahead of the king to make this road back into Judah straight and plain, it's saying God is the victor here. God is the king. God is the one who has won the battle. Your king is coming to lead you home by straight paths, by plain and smooth roads. Your way is not to be made difficult anymore. God is walking it ahead of you and making straight the path. This is a beautiful image for people who have been living in exile. They've been living under a foreign king. They've been living under a foreign rule. They don't have a temple. We cannot imagine what it's like not to have a temple. Because we don't go to a temple, right? The temple isn't the center of our worship. The temple isn't the place where God touches the earth. But for these people, that's exactly what the temple is. The temple is the center center of their religious life. The temple is literally the place where the presence of God touches the earth. It is the only place on earth you can go to meet with the presence of God. And if the temple's not there, you can't be made right. The sacrifices can't take place. Your prayers go up into heaven, but you're not sure if they'll be heard by God. Because when you pray, you pray facing the temple so that your prayers will go to the temple into heaven. The temple is of such central importance for these people. They haven't had a temple for 70 years while in exile, living in a foreign land under a foreign king with foreign gods. These are a people who have felt abandoned. As much as God has told them through the prophets, I'm still with you in Babylon, I'm still going to be there. As much as Jeremiah wrote these letters and tried to tell the people that God is still with you in the foreign land, God is not bound by the temple or by the geography of your land, when that's been your mentality your entire life, you can't break free of it. And so the people who have been living in exile in Babylon under a foreign king with no temple of their own, are now being told, you get to go home. You get to go. This is bigger than VE Day. This is bigger than anything we've ever known. You get to go home, and God himself is going to lead you home. And so the people are rejoicing. Only only here in the middle, in verses 6 to 8, we get this other voice that comes in. So the one voice says, hey, make the path straight. God is coming to lead his people home. And this other voice comes in and basically asks, are they really worth it? Listen to these words. All humanity is grass. And all its goodness, that is, its chesed, its loving kindness. God is the standard of loving kindness. God is the standard of loving patience. Chesed is a huge Hebrew word. And what, the, what the, the shouter here is saying is all of their chesed is not like yours, God. It's fading. It withers. It goes away. These people are like grass. When you speak, they wither. Are they really worth saving? That's what's being asked here. It's a counter voice. Back in Isaiah chapter 6, when the prophet Isaiah was called, when God spoke to Isaiah and said, who will go for me? 
And Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. He was told by God, you're going to go out and you're going to preach and you're going to talk my words and the people's ears are going to be shut and the people are going to reject you and reject my words. That was the message Isaiah received. That was the expectation of the prophet. And now this time the voice of God is saying, go prepare a way for me. I'm coming to take my people home. And the poet here, the the prophet here, like Isaiah in chapter 6, is saying, we are a people of unclean lips. We are like grass. Our loving kindness is is a fart in the wind. It glows right away. Like, we're not patient. We're not loving. We're not all that. Are we worth it? And then verse 9 comes in. And this is beautiful. I actually think verse 8 doesn't belong with those other words about humanity being grass. I think verse 8 is the response to that. Verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. This is an acknowledgement. Yes, humanity is like grass. Yeah, y'all aren't all that great. I mean, really, who's looked in the mirror lately, right? Who's listened to your own words? Right? Sometimes when my kids are behaving, I record them. These are the beauty of your phones, right? Because, you know, a long time ago, you'd have to get out the recorder and it'd be obvious and stuff. Now I can just take my phone and be like, mm. and then later be like, look, Maggie, do you, do you see how you're behaving? I can't wait till she does that to me one day. It's going to happen. I know. But we know if we're true to ourselves, if we're, if we're really looking in the mirror and seeing ourselves clearly, we know how much we fall short. We know how unholy we are. That standard of shalom by which we judge the rest of the world, we judge ourselves by it too. And when we do, we recognize, that ain't me. I don't live in peace. I'm not everything that God wants me to be yet. I don't live in shalom. And so this, this, this speaker here is really just telling the truth about humanity and wondering, God, is, is it worthwhile? And the word comes back. And essentially, it is a giant, capital, yes. Because the word of God remains forever. Yeah, people, you're like grass. You fade. You die. When God's word's spoken over you, you wither. But you're worth it. You're still worth it. Every time I hold that standard of shalom up and I realize I'm not like it, And I'm tempted to despair because I can't reach that. I can't be all that God wants me to be on my own. I'm tempted to despair because all of my efforts to reach shalom are failing. God looks at me and says, but you're worth it. You're totally worth it. And that's what verses 9 through 11 say. Zion, herald of good news, go up on a high mountain. Jerusalem, herald of good news, raise your voice loudly. Raise it. Don't be afraid. Speak the truth of God and say, here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with strength and his power establishes his rule. His wages are with him. And his reward accompanies him. He protects his flock like a shepherd He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garment and he gently leads those that are nursing. How good is this God? Where in the past, the prophet's task was to stand up and say, God is good and y'all ain't, so you're going into exile. 
the past, the prophet was told to go and preach the goodness of God and the sin of the people that would lead them into exile. And now the prophet is being told, now it's time for you to go out and just proclaim your goodness to a people who don't deserve it. Just go proclaim your goodness to these people. Stand up in Jerusalem. Stand on Mount Zion. Stand where the temple ought to be and proclaim to the people that God is coming. And where once this may have been a reason for fear, now this is a reason for rejoicing. Because when your God comes in the power and in his strength, he will use his power and strength not to send you into exile, but to comfort you. Your God is one who is mighty and power, who can run the enemies of God's people away. Your God is one who comes in strength and authority. And your God is one who comes in gentleness and meekness. Look at what he does here. He protects the flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them in the fold of his garment. And he gently leads those that are nursing. That is, God cares for the whole flock. The strong and the weak. The rams and the lambs. And the tiny little ones that are still nursing. God comes in power and he uses his power to embrace his children out of their exile. And the people return home, and they rebuild the temple, and they get to be God's people again. And you're like, hey, all oh, that's really great. What the heck does that have to do with John the baptizer? Like, this is all really good for Jews. This is great for the children of Judah. What does it mean that John the baptizer is now the guy who's coming and preparing the way, making the road straight, making the path plain and smooth? for God to come. Folks, when we read the Scripture, when we look to the Gospels of Jesus, we read the Scripture as a people in exile. We read the Scripture as a people who have been separated from God. When we come on our own, we come as a people who are not living in God's best. We're not living in God's shalom. We're not living in God's land. We're not in the temple, pure and holy before God. When we come, we, live, we come as a people who live in exile, who have been separated from God, separated from the presence of God. When we come with all of our sin, we come just as those children of Judah did when they lived in Babylon. And when John the baptizer comes to us, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, Greek and barbarian, when John the baptizer comes to us and says, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. He is the voice that Isaiah called for, who says, your God is coming in strength. Your God is coming in the power of his might. Your God is coming to set you free. Your God is coming to liberate you from exile and bring you home to himself. When John the baptizer comes, it is nothing but good news for those who will repent and put their faith and their hope in Jesus to whom he points.
We who have been living in exile, walking in darkness, get to look upon the glorious light of Jesus and know that the strength of God has been deployed not to destroy us, not to send us further into exile, not to cast us into everlasting darkness, but to bring light into our darkness, to liberate us from exile, to free us from our sin and from the chains that bind us and to make us His children, to proclaim the good news that the Lord has come. And he has come to deploy his strength in gentleness. To care for us as his flock. To hold the lamb. To care for the nursing lamb. To hold us together as his people. And we know that his strength is coming to be deployed in gentleness because when God shows up on the scene, he shows up in a manger as the most helpless of people, a baby born to a poor couple from a backwater in Judea. And when he lives his life, he lives his life upholding the oppressed and caring for the downtrodden. He lives his life calling to sinners and saying God's embrace is for you. He lives his life calling people to the gentle love of our strong God to the extent that he gives up that strength to go to a cross, to pay for our sin, to allow all the powers of the world to kill him because they couldn't understand a strength that would come in gentleness. Because they couldn't comprehend a power and a strength that would come to embrace and not to harm. They couldn't comprehend a strength and a power that would come not to rule with an iron thumb, but to lead as a shepherd of a flock. And so the world crucifies Jesus because they can't see his power. They can't understand his strength. And then on the third day, Jesus, in all of that power, and all the power of God rises from the grave and proves that the world didn't know what they were talking about, the world didn't know what they were doing when they crucified him, and proves what godly power rightly deployed truly is. It is laying down one's life for one's friends and family. It is laying down one's life for one's enemies in order for them to be embraced and cared for as a flock. This is what peace is. This is what shalom is. Shalom is God's people mobilized to act in the strength of Christ, which is the strength that lays its life down for its friends and its enemies. It's a strength that upholds the weak. It's a strength that cares for the broken and provides for the needy. That's what strength does in Jesus. And that's the only power that will bring shalom to our world. And the only way we can walk in that strength, pursuing shalom, is through Jesus Christ and through the power of His Holy Spirit living within us. That's the only self-sacrificial strength that can mobilize us to pursue God's shalom wholeheartedly. And so the call to us as we anticipate the coming of our King 
The most powerful being in all of the universe laid down in a manger as a helpless baby. The call to us as we look upon the power of God concentrated in a manger is to walk as followers of Jesus in shalom, using the power and the strength and the resources God has given us to pursue His good purposes for our community, beginning with the proclamation that when God has come, He has not come to judge you and to throw you into hell. He has come to redeem you, to deal with your sin, and to call you into His family once and for all. If only you will repent and put your faith and trust in King Jesus today. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that when your strength came, it made the path straight and paved the way for us. It made the way to you easy. That Jesus has come to give us a way to you through his cross and resurrection. A way that we could not earn. A way that we could not build for ourselves. That we couldn't pay for ourselves. Thank you that when you have come, you have come to bring shalom. God's purposes. And God, as people who are given to you, as people who are followers of Jesus, citizens of your kingdom, I pray that you would mobilize this community to act on behalf of shalom, to walk in peace, seeking your purposes, seeking your goodness, and living out of the power of the Holy Spirit, strengthened to lay down our lives for our world. Strengthened, Lord, you, to as you have done, give ourselves up for the good of our world, not just for our generation, but for all of the generations to come. Let us never be short-sighted like King Hezekiah and say, everything's good while I'm here. But instead, Lord, to look to your future, to anticipate your shalom coming into our world. And finally, Lord, to anticipate the day, Jesus, you will return and truly make all things right. In the meantime, I pray that we are a community where we see glimpses of your shalom on earth so that when we get to your heaven, when we get to your fulfilled kingdom, we say, yeah, I got a taste of that while I was living down there. Thank you, Lord, for all you have done for your enemies, myself included. Thank In the name you, of Jesus. Jesus, amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.